0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Four years ago, Tina Grego left her job as a columnist at the Denver Post and moved to Virginia. When she returned to Colorado in July, a lot had changed, including the housing market.
1: We lived in a 1920s, two-bedroom, one-bath, galley kitchen, red-brick bungalow, with a little more than 900 square feet upstairs and a smaller basement that was inhabitable, if you weren't picky. When the estimated market value surpassed 440000 440000 almost 40% more than our sales price, I stopped looking because my masochism has its limits. I consider myself part of the middle class, shrinking as it may be, and it's a jolt to realize that I can no longer afford the neighborhood I left only a few years earlier.
0: The price of a house is just one of the eye-opening experiences Grego has encountered since returning to Denver. She wrote a column about it recently for the Colorado Independent, where she's an editor and writer. Tina, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Good morning.
0: Uh, Where did your family end up moving when you returned to Colorado?
1: We are in Fort Collins. Lovely Fort Collins.
0: Uh, But there has to be some part of the city that you miss.
1: Of Denver itself? Yeah. Oh, there's a ton I missed about Denver. Denver is a, a great city. It's a vibrant city. It's got, I mean, everything. It has neighborhoods with unique identities. It has food. It has arts. It has you know Denver is a wonderful city
0: but essentially you were priced out of Denver
1: Yeah there's there a, so there was a, a couple of factors one is we moved because my husband was hired on faculty at CSU mm-hmm. so we knew we were going to be close to Fort Collins if not in Fort Collins because I'm better with the commute than he is and the other is yeah Denver is too expensive for us we we could not afford to live in the neighborhood where we used to live and um and so that was definitely a factor your
0: quest for housing and the column that you wrote uh, resonated with a lot of people across the Front Range. Did you expect that or were you just kind of venting a little bit?
1: Um, so I am not the first to write about the affordable housing crisis in Denver or the kind of struggles that are taking place over gentrification and what we gain and what we lose. But I think... Perhaps it's just because I was away for four years and coming in and seeing it with fresh eyes um, and then being able to write from that perspective. Maybe it was the distance that uh, allowed people to kind of connect with it in a way. I I, I don't know that I was venting it in so much as it was – I was really stunned. I, I was really stunned by the scale of change that had taken place in a relatively short period of time. It was only four years.
0: Yeah. And you left Colorado for Richmond, Virginia, after your husband took a job at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, Both Richmond and Denver are state capitals and both have similarities in population. You say that Denver offers a glimpse of the future for Richmond. Uh, How so?
1: Well, so Richmond is smaller, both in population and in geography. Uh, But like many cities, it's starting to see, well, first of all, like many cities, it saw um, kind of the abandonment of the middle class, right um, Richmond has its own particular history that 's related to white flight. Denver was not immune from that, but Richmond, like many cities in the country now, is benefiting from this kind of you know, demographic tide that is seeing people, young people, empty nesters, the kind of creatives that are that want to be back in a city again. so I would say maybe richmond 's probably about ten years behind Denver. And so that had started when we moved there in the fall of 2012. You could see it start to begin to happen. And Denver is just ahead, much in the same way California tends to be ahead of the rest of the country. Denver is ahead of Richmond. And I think as people were moving back into Richmond, the same kinds of questions are being raised there that have been raised here, that are continuing to be raised here, about what kind of city are we? Um, who is going to be left out? How do we make sure that the that the changes, and we want a vibrant city, right? Uh, how are we going to make sure that everybody has access to the same opportunity and that neighborhoods that were once neglected um, are not kind of run over by this tide of of reinvestment, that instead they share in it? Those are the kinds of questions I think that uh, Denver is grappling with, that I think it would behoove Richmond to pay attention to. And you
0: mentioned in, in your column neighborhoods like Baker, Five Points, Rhino, places that you have been to and are like, this is amazing. But it creates this internal conflict for, for you, and I'm assuming for, for people as well. How do you De- How does Denver, as a city, square that with the development, but also the fact that there are segments of the population that are not benefiting from uh, this development?
1: Well, I mean that's that's, that's the huge the challenge, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I have to say that when I was reporting that story, I I kept wondering: Is Denver too late? Is the is the market moving so quickly that the city can't catch up? I do think that the that um the city has strategies that it's now putting in place it it kind of remains to be seen how how quickly it can find that I think in the story I talk about this kind of sweet spot between market forces and public policy so that it harnesses the energy of reinvestment, which we want, right? We want a city that's vibrant. Um, we, we don't want stagnation, but it harnesses and kind of shapes it in such a way, either through land banking or through buying properties that are going to go on the market and making sure they stay affordable, or by making sure small businesses that are already in these neighborhoods are getting some of this investment. Um, so if it can kind of channel it, so that the people who live there now are not forcibly displaced. in um, and, and by which I mean, say, their renters and their landlord decides, oh, I'm going to cash in now. I'm going to sell this building. We're going to turn it into high you know, market rate apartments. And then they can't afford those. And so then they're gone. And, you're
0: and saying- I think that's
1: really what the city is kind of wrestling with, like how – how do we do that? How do we capture? How do we capture this? Is it possible to capture?
0: Is that the city's responsibility? Is it? Is it the the private sector's responsibility? Uh, how, how, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I, I don't. I think it's. I think it's all of our responsibility. I mean, I think. I think that um, we have to be listening to our neighborhood groups. The people who have been there and who have made investments in our communities, I think we have to be talking to – I mean, the city The city doesn't have the resources to do this. And I'm not sure that this, it's the city's role um, in and of itself to kind of shape a neighborhood, right? Um, but it's that marriage of what a city can bring to a table with – what the community wants and where the community is going and market all kind of all of those three things together. So the city has to be conscious of such things as what is the impact of uh, I mean, maybe the stock show. This all started happening when I left. What does that do? The development of the stock show. In, in, yes. In, in what does Denver? that do to the neighborhoods around Global Area Swansea? Um, what is the impact of transit oriented development? We put a a light rail station at Decatur. Um, so what is going to be the impact of a light rail station south of the Mile High Stadium, but north of one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city? And, and we have to just, I think that there's just got to be an awareness of consequences and how to make the best of these kinds of developments.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Havel. We're talking with Tina Griego, a former columnist for the Denver Post, who, after four years away from the state, now writes for the Colorado Independent. Before you left, you were a voice for many of the cities and the regions, underrepresented people at a time when there wasn't a Black Lives Matter or Occupy Denver. What do you think has led to the emergence of such groups in Denver? And are they taking charge of telling their own stories and, and highlighting the concerns they're having?
1: mm So, this is a question that I can't yet answer well. I haven't been back long enough i've only been back for two months, and so so much happened locally while I was gone that I need to understand before I can really speak about it. We do know that in general terms, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement has seen also the 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 growth of a younger generation of activists and community people who are speaking out and um, in ways that might have been different than their elders would have and harnessing a technology that their elders did not possess. And I think that that's that's true across the nation. I I have no reason to believe that Denver is any different. Um, We still have a minority population, Latino population of, what, about 30 percent? so african american population is smaller and so i'm i don't i, I can't really answer that question yet because i s- simply haven't been here long enough to kind of delve into all of the interesting cross currents and nuances that have to do with age and race and income and how those play out in the power structure. Do, do you think
0: those stories are being told? You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to the fact that there is attrition of news outlets, in particular print journal, journalism, where you were writing. When you left four years ago, you were the only metro columnist in the city and with shrinking newsrooms. Things have still been changing across the media landscape. Are these stories being told adequately uh, in your view?
1: Um, well, again, you're asking me for a question that I can't <laughs> quite can't answer because I haven't been here for yeah. four years. But I can tell you that, I mean, I, what's happened on the media landscape in denver is tragic it's just tragic the, the the rocky closed in 2009 the denver post has gone through a series of layoffs and buyouts and attrition and the people who are still there um are doing yeoman's work right they are working where they are working hard um, to, to to hustle and to cover the news of the city. So, quick, but you know, realistically, those the resources are much smaller. So you have a landscape now where the daily newspaper has shrunk, and you've got journalists there who are hustling every day. You've got CPR. You've got the rise of the smaller um, nonprofit and for profit. Outlets, the Colorado Independent is a nonprofit, tiny but mighty. We like to say, and you know, we try and get out there and cover what we can within our resources. But we are donation funded, so so it's one of those things where you're seeing outlets come up. Chalkbeat Colorado, for example, that that was here before I left, but it's only gotten stronger. And they uh, deal in, with education stories, and they education. do education, mm-hmm. and so. So I, the spirit is alive. The ambition and the desire is alive to tell the stories of this city, the state capital, and um, and it is a matter of how do we how do we best tell these stories with what we have right now. So, you know, I I couldn't tell you what the journal. How many journalists of color are there now? But, um, but you'll be the there. City.
0: You'll be there covering these stories. It sounds like
1: I will be doing my best.
0: Tina, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: After four years away, former Denver Post columnist Tina Grego has returned to Colorado and now works at the Colorado Independent. Coming up, the new CEO of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. The Denver Center for the Performing Arts searched around the world for a new leader and found one right here in Denver. Janice Sinden takes the helm after serving as Denver Mayor Michael Hancock's chief of staff. Sinden is only the third CEO in the Denver Center's nearly 40-year history and the first woman. Janice, welcome. Thank you. You've been in this new job for almost a month now. Yes. And you don't have prior arts management experience. How has your work in city government prepared you for this job?
2: That's a great question. I believe that my uh, time at the city really gave me an opportunity to understand the fabric of our community and understand large organizational management. And this is an incredible organization with a lot of depth in the uh, different um, demographics, whether it's regional or um, we have 79 unique neighborhoods in Denver and understanding what makes those communities tick is really important in the arts. How do you talk to those people? How do you engage those people? So really understanding the people, I think, gives me a unique perspective coming into this role.
0: And the Denver Center is a large arts organization that brings Broadway shows to Denver, produces plays, manages outreach programs for Colorado students. The previous CEO, President Scott Schiller, resigned suddenly earlier this year, citing a difference of vision. You've said that you that, that really didn't give you pause uh, when considering the job. Why was that?
2: Well, I believe that my long attendance at the DCPA helps me to understand the unique offerings that the center provides our community and, quite frankly, our region and our nation. And I also have a very close relationship with Mr. Ritchie, who was a prior CEO. I worked with him uh, as a board chair of an organization I ran before I was with the mayor's office. And so there's a lot of comfort and synergy between he and I. Also, I knew almost all of the board members when I came into the organization and was familiar with many of the leaders inside the organization as well. So I think my familiarity and existing relationships will ensure that we have a, a steady ride here.
0: So is is there a need for a reset with the prior prior administration and things like that for you?
2: I believe that the organization is in incredible shape. The longevity of the people that work in this organization is unprecedented. It's been fascinating whether I'm going through uh, the stagehands or I'm... I'm meeting with the production teams. The longevity that the people have and their commitment and passion to the arts is just preeminent. So I believe that they have a incredible trajectory in front of them. And I really just want to help make sure that they grow and think differently and bring new relationships and opportunities to the center.
0: And it sounds like that's a bit of what your vision is going to be. You'll oversee two big uh, divisions, uh, DCPA Theater Company and the Broadway presenting arm. Uh, DCPA has a record-setting year, uh, had a record-setting year, rather, with more than $35 million in ticket sales for Broadway programming, how will you continue that momentum?
2: Well, I believe that as we continue to look at what our customers, um, what our guests would like to see in uh, in the theater, there's a lot of opportunity to continue to think creatively. I think when a show like Hamilton is coming to Denver, there's a lot of excitement. And if you watch the Rocky Mountain PBS documentary on October 21st, which we just previewed this week, it'll be a really important transition in the way people think about theater, that we're really trying to figure out the new faces in uh, not only the seats, but the the new ways that theater is telling old stories but in a new way. I mean, there's a hip-hop component to a legendary tale of a former president, you know, and um, so it's it's an exciting time to just continue to think outside of the box.
0: And Frozen's going to get its pre-Broadway premiere here in Denver, isn't that correct?
2: That's right, yes. Now, is, is the, the increase
0: in ticket sales, and, and is that simply because, like we just heard in our last segment, Denver is getting bigger. People are moving to the city, which means more people want to see these shows, or is it the content that you're providing?
2: Well, hopefully it's both. Hopefully that with more people, there are more guests, more patrons coming through. But also at the same time, I think with creative content and thinking about what we haven't done before and making sure that we have offerings, whether it's in a small theater to a more edgy um, demographic or whether we have a show that has run over and over again but brought a lot of excitement. I think it's both. I think we have to have a very diverse offering and it's something we're committed to.
0: Let's, uh, the Denver Center has had a lot of success. Uh, with a show called Sweet and Lucky. Yes. Uh, This was interactive theater uh, where the audience actually participates. The entire run sold out, and I understand there's a new theater experience in the works. Uh, This would be in the spring at the Stanley Marketplace in Aurora. Briefly, what more can you tell me about that?
2: Sure. So immersive theater is a really experiential way to bring folks into the theater experience, not simply observing it, but having a First hand experience walking, touching, feeling, smelling, and it's a um It's something that has happened over time. There are theaters all across the world that have explored immersive theater but we're really trying to figure out how to bring new production to the Denver region and as you mentioned this will be in Aurora Mm -hmm. so uh, it'll be very different than Sweet and Lucky. The um, team that's come together uh, with the DCPA ACE are the women who really helped to lead Girls Only and that was a two year run um, at the DCPA so it's an exciting partnership and it's also something that we're focused on with the Wallace Foundation. We've gotten a grant to uh, really explore sustainability um, in the theater and how to uh, grow um, interest from non-traditional patrons uh, who are looking for a new experience. So it's uh, in the works right now, and um, we're just excited to take it to the community.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Janice Sinden. She's the new president and CEO, the new CEO, rather, of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Prior to that, Sinden was Mayor Michael Hancock's chief of staff. She joins me today to share her vision for the Denver Center. Let's talk about Next Stage. Uh, this is still in flux. Uh, it's a multimillion dollar plan to redevelop the Denver Performing Arts Complex. That's the 12 block campus of, uh, that houses spaces like the Ellie Hawkins Opera House, the Buell Theater, Betcher Concert Hall, and has four resident organizations, including the Denver Center. In 2014, while you were a part of Hancock's administration, uh, the mayor assembled a team of people to speak with arts patrons, presenters and the public um, and gather input for what people wanted from this space. As an aide to the mayor, what was your role in all of this?
2: So... Mayor Hancock has a really strong commitment to our arts and culture community and recognizing the vision that Mr. Donald Sewell had when the complex was designed, he really wanted to modernize that and reimagine what that complex could be so that there are youth and millennials and Gen X folks and that it's activated in the plaza and the Galleria. Uh, really a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week experience with retail and activation restaurants, fine dining, um, you know, uh, any type of performing artist could be in that space. And so he really said, well, let's ask the patrons and the community what they want. And it's uh, it's far from being done, but it certainly has provided an opportunity for us to think outside of what we currently do on the site. So there could be residences, there could be residential, there could be, um, you know, the parking garage could move. I mean, there's some controversy around um, moving the, the tower where the parking garage is now and putting it under Sculpture Park, but really taking that real estate back and making it something amazing for the community. So also the proximity to the convention center provides an opportunity for all of the resident companies in the Performing Arts Complex to really bring theater to the world, not just to the Denver region.
0: I've heard the Arts Complex has been called a ghost town during daylight hours. Uh, How do you think these things would draw more people into that space? They seem like lofty ideals, but Mm -hmm. is there a matrix that you're going to be following that says, yeah, okay, we're a success?
2: (laughs) Sure. It's a great question. And again, if people are living there, if guests that are in from out of town, whether it's for a convention or to see a show, are staying in a hotel that could be located on that campus, I think there's a lot of natural activation that would occur. If you paired that with performing artists in the pavilion space, it'll just have a more interactive, uh, you know, experience for the folks walking through. And then if you put bars and restaurants and retail on that complex, I think it'll naturally happen. Look at how beautiful Larimer Square is and Larimer Street. you know, it's a street that's activated all the time because the city and the private sector put the time into saying what will draw people into this area of town. And that's, I think, the vision for the expansion of the complex.
0: DCPA is the biggest tenant of the four resident companies at the Performing Arts Complex. Some could argue your previous position with the mayor's office could sway favor for the Denver Center in this redevelopment plan. What have you done to ensure you stay within ethical boundaries in this new role?
2: Sure. That's a great question. The Board of Ethics in the City and County of Denver is led by Director Michael Henry. I actually have been in close contact with him and told him all of the projects that I'm aware of that um, where there would be interaction between me and the DCPA and the city. And he has asked me to come in and meet with the board on October 19th. So I will do that and I will follow the letter of the law. If I need to have a cooling off period, um, I will absolutely adhere to that. But if not, then we'll go about our normal course of business.
0: I want to diversity. We've heard a lot about that and 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 how do you think this plan overall will attract a more diverse group of people to come see Denver Center shows, to actually come into the city to to view plays and and theatrical performances.
2: Sure. Just like Sweet and Lucky and uh, um, the new show that will be in Aurora, the off-center component is really providing people in their own community or outside of the city center an opportunity to experience theater. And I think when you pair that with an activated complex, there is a lot of opportunity to bring new energy and new um, non-traditional theater goers uh, into the complex. I also think that um, while the campus does feel a little under uh, activated during the day. If you're behind the scenes or in the theaters, that's where the production is happening. And there's about 87,000 children across the state of Colorado that are touched through the different programs that we have. And there are school children walking in and around the campus a lot. So um, the outreach to diverse communities is going to take time um, and making sure we have content that is attractive to them will be a priority.
0: What about diversifying uh, who people see on stage and who sure. works within the organization, whatever efforts we you take on that?
2: Sure. I believe that uh, John Eckeberg and Kent Thompson are doing everything they can to really promote opportunities for new actors that have not necessarily been on our stage before to be a part of our, um, our company. And uh, the casting is a really important part of that, making sure that we have delivered a Um, a message to the community and to anyone who's interested, whether it's a stagehand or an actor, that this is a place that we welcome all.
0: Your organization got more than $6.3 million uh, last year from what's called the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD, about 10% of your operating budget. Uh, This money comes from a cultural tax that helps support nonprofits like museums and orchestras. It's up for renewal this November, so it must be top of mind for you. Uh, At the same time, charitable gifts to Denver arts groups are also up, and that's according to a new economic impact study released this week by Colorado Business Committee for the Arts. If that's the case, that more people are giving privately, why place so much reliance on SCFD?
2: So SCFD, while you mentioned, is 10 percent of our budget, I think it's a real strong statement that the seven counties that contribute to that tax really have a strong support of the arts and culture. I mean, more than 300 organizations are supported by the SCFD and that unifying message that we support the arts is unprecedented. Having traveled all over the world uh, with the mayor especially, I think we were in more than 20 countries and this was a question that was repeatedly asked was how does a region like uh, the Denver Metro region come together to tax themselves to support the arts? So I think that the while the money is important, the regional participation is, um, it's unprecedented.
0: Janice, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Janice Sinden is the Denver Center for the Performing Arts new president and CEO. Prior to that, she served as Mayor Michael Hancock's chief of staff. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration could make a natural substance called Kratom a Schedule 1 drug. That puts it in the same category as heroin and ecstasy. But fans of Kratom say it can relieve anxiety and depression and that it helps people stay off other substances substances like opioids. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis is following the story locally and spoke with Ryan Warner. First off, Michael, what is Kratom?
3: Kratom, or kratom, is made from the leaves of a Southeast Asian tree. It's usually dried and powdered and either taken as a pill or brewed as a tea or mixed with other liquids. And
4: why does the DEA plan to make it illegal?
3: The agency says there are signs that abuse of it is on the rise. Nationwide, there were 15 kratom-related deaths between 2014 and 2016, including one in Colorado. And the Centers for Disease Control says they've received 660 calls related to kratom exposure between 2010 and 2015.
4: All right. 15 deaths nationwide in a two-year period. That doesn't seem like a lot of deaths relatively.
3: No. And and consider the nearly 19,000 deaths from opioid pain relievers in 2014 alone. I talked with Dr. Jeffrey Brent, a professor and toxicologist at the CU School of Medicine. He says the kratom numbers don't seem overly concerning.
4: If they were unambiguous, kratom-caused deaths, I'd be a little bit more concerned than these kind of mixed drug overdoses that, that, or mixed drug uses where kratom might not have even been a particularly big player.
3: He says these anecdotal accounts of people who say it's helpful for chronic pain and withdrawal from other drugs are just that, anecdotal, so not necessarily reliable, since little research has been done. He says that kratom is a weak substance, though, and that, in his opinion, it doesn't cause a lot of issues for most that use it. And like anything, too much will make you sick.
4: You wrote an in-depth story about kratom in Colorado, which you can read at CPRnews.org. And you talked to supporters at a kratom rally at the state capitol a couple of weeks ago. What kind of protests has the DEA heard?
3: When I spoke with the DEA, they said the response has been unexpected. They're receiving hundreds of calls, along with a letter of objection from Congress with 52 signatures, including one from Colorado Democratic Representative Jared Polis. He says he fears banning Kratom could make the opioid crisis worse.
4: Why hasn't the ban gone into effect yet?
3: When the DEA made its announcement in early September, they said that in as little as 30 days, Kratom could officially be made a Schedule I. So now it could happen at any time. But when I asked what their current plan is, a DEA spokesperson said they are now reconsidering moving forward with the emergency scheduling because of new information they've received. That's all they would say for now.
4: Okay, they are reconsidering. Uh, But in terms of the eyes of the federal government, it's still legal to own and sell. Yet Rocky Mountain Kratom, a store in Denver, already closed. Why?
3: The Denver Department of Environmental Health put a hold order on the business's supply of Kratom, along with 14 other businesses in the area, about a week after the DEA's announcement on August 30th. They say they felt quick action was necessary, given that the DEA is framing this as a pressing public health concern.
4: They're not waiting, in other words, for an actual Schedule 1.
3: No, they're not. And Jeremy Haley is the owner of Rocky Mountain Kratom, one of the only Kratom storefronts in the nation. He's been selling a natural substance for over five years, first out of his home, then out of his now shuttered store on Broadway.
5: There's so many questions, you know, that aren't even being like easily answered by uh, the DEA right now that cause a lot of stress for a lot of vendors right now because, I mean, this is our freedom on the line. If they make it Schedule 1, technically they'll be treating it the same as heroin. How did Haley get into the Kratom business?
3: He started taking Kratom after hearing about it on a podcast and found it really helped with his anxiety, depression, and his cravings for alcohol. And when he was arrested for a DUI and drug possession in 2012, he says Kratom really helped keep him sober on probation. That's when he got the idea to start selling it, and he got his peddler's permit from the city.
5: I'd walk out there with my big, goofy peddler's badge, <laughs> and there'd be, like, soccer moms and uh, elderly. I was really shocked by it, actually, at first. I, I kind of had my own personal stigma and an idea of what crowd amusers, what the demographic would be.
3: He admits that his operation looked sketchy, Okay, meeting people on corners and using brown paper bags. But he says he had to start somewhere, and his customers were coming to him desperate, Many of them found his business through searching online for opioid withdrawal help in Denver.
4: So his business was doing well?
3: Yeah, he was already working on opening his other shop before Rocky Mountain Kratom was closed. And he said he was on the verge of opening many locations and getting his product into other outlets. But his company had issues with getting Kratom into the U.S., Jeremy had to get creative, including labeling all of his kratom with "not for human consumption" warnings.
5: It's pretty unfair, and it's always felt very gross having to put those disclaimers on there because we obviously all know the deal. Uh, We were making like kratom candles, even you know, (laughs) just so we could keep our customers, provide them the relief that they need.
3: What I think's most interesting is Jeremy says he's selling this product to help people get off of other drugs. He's not trying to get anyone hooked on anything. And now the DEA wants to make what he's doing a crime.
4: What are his plans now?
3: Well, the Department of Environmental Health in Denver says they're going to keep the holds on Kratom until the DEA completely drops the plans to make it a Schedule 1. That means that even if it's legal to own and sell, you can't do that in Denver right now. So Jeremy's supply has been moved to a storage facility where it will be destroyed if the DEA goes through with their decision. Thanks, Michael. Thank you.
0: CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis speaking with Ryan Warner about local developments around the herbal supplement Kratom. Coming up, are they bluegrass or jamgrass or we'll ask green sky bluegrass next? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The band Green Sky Bluegrass has been described lots of different ways, as a drummerless rock band, a jam-grass act, and as rock and roll bluegrass. I think I'll run
6: before know what I have done. going to clear myself from here. may maybe a while before I feel alive. But I will run or I may die.
0: We're listening to Run or Die off the band's newest album, which is called Shouted, Written Down, and Quoted. Green Sky Bluegrass won the Telluride Bluegrass Festival Band Contest in 2006, and three of the five members live in Colorado. That includes mandolin player and singer Paul Hoffman, and singer-guitar player Dave Bruza. Paul, Dave, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Hello. I understand that you've uh, compared this album to
6: that of a mixtape. Uh, how is it like a mixtape? Uh, I tend to say that about a lot of our records. I think our band, in general, <clears throat> at some point we decided that playing just straight-ahead bluegrass was kind of a lot of the same thing. So a lot of our show and songwriting process is about like mixing up all these different elements and things we can do with our yeah. band and textures. So y- you know, often there's like a there's a driving fast song, there's a slow psychedelic song, there's this like medium country vibe thing. So. You know, it kind of creates like sometimes what seems like might not be a coherent vibe for the record because it's up, down, left, right. But um, I think it makes for a nice balance. It's kind of just the way the band is.
0: Dave, what would you consider the song that we just heard, uh, Run or Die?
7: I'd say it's kind of a more of a driving kind of, it has a bluegrass feel. But as far as like the, the structure of the tune, it's a little more than three chords. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs>
6: <laughs> it's four chords <horrible. laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> well but a lot of those songs are in a sense the the bluegrass history Yeah, has a lot of Absolutely. that just over and over repetition but in a, in a unique way uh, I, I read that when you were recording uh, shouted, written down and quoted it was the longest chunk of time that you've ever spent recording as a band uh, and you spent some of that time here at the Mountain House Recording Studio in Nederland. Uh Dave why did you take your time with this release? I think we wanted to be a little more patient with uh, putting something together.
7: Um, that and, you know, a lot of these songs that are on the record were songs that we'd never really had a chance to sit down and arrange and uh, come up with ideas for. So we really wanted to take as much time as possible to be able to be,
6: you know, make the best record we could. Nicole, Yeah, Yeah, um, with every record we've made, with, that's sort of been the growth for us is more time. Mm-hmm. Just so we can, you know, when you're... Miking an amp, or when you're trying a vocal take or working on an arrangement, you, there's always like a little bit of a urgency to get the record done. You're on a schedule. You have all the time in the world, but you also don't. So, mm-hmm. having more time, we were kind of just could chase the rabbit down the hole a little bit and not worry about if we were being productive. Like, let's just try this for an hour and a half, and and yeah. then be like,
0: well. We tried it <laughs> yeah
6: just and being it, comfortable and it yeah. works
0: and it doesn't work and you move on and continue and yeah, yeah it's
6: a fun making a record is a really fun process and it's exciting and taking more time to do it just is more fun so
0: well you can you can hear that in this piece uh, it's called past my prime and it's from the new album
6: just like on television this heart full of ambition has been haunting my dreams reaching for grand things and I never really knew
0: you're hitting the beats there as you're you're listening to this, you're talking back and forth with each other. Uh, I
6: hear this song is not meant to be taken too seriously. Why is that? I said that in an interview about the song. Um, This is a good one for what we were just talking about too and not um, having the band not being familiar with all the tunes that I or Dave wrote. Um, Mm -hmm. This one was sort of like a song that I wrote years before we made the record, and I shelved it. And just and then the day, a couple days before we left to go to the studio, I was sort of going through my notes and looking at what was available to use. And I started messing around with this tune. And then right when we got in the studio while they were setting up, I started messing around with it. And these guys were like, what's that one? And I'm like, it's one I forgot about. And it was the first thing we recorded. So we sort of tackled it as this, like, you know, we weren't, we didn't intend to even record it. So um, it came off kind of light, and it's well, a cool tune. What's it about? Um, it's about being <laughs> past your prime, going too far. It's kind of like this uh, romantic like attachment to something that maybe you shouldn't keep trying to do because you're failing or something. Well, I don't seems, know. It seems pretty serious. But so, so when you said it's not to be taken seriously, I mentioned in, in an interview one time that I wrote it sort of in jest. I just wrote it. It wasn't like I was having this. Per- it's not a personal piece for me, but it's definitely very serious. You know.
0: I mean, do you write from there? Both of you, do you write from that sense of, of personal experience or can you do songs like this without having any connection to what you're writing about at all?
6: Both. You know, um, I learned a while ago to kind of try and write from other people's perspectives sometimes, like Mm -hmm. like a novelist would character write or something, like to imagine how someone else would feel about something as a way to try and broaden what I could write about. Mm -hmm. But then after writing those pieces, then I learned that, you know, I'm only writing what I would imagine that person would feel. So somehow Mm -hmm. it's still all your own experience. Um, when
0: when the band won the Telluride Contest 10 years ago, is it correct that you weren't actually registered to compete? Yeah, that's very true.
7: <laughs> we just kind of showed up and slept in a van. Uh, we were playing Crested Butte the night before at the Eldo, I think. Totally. And we drove overnight and uh, slept in the van and we showed up like, hey, we have the entry money you might have been the driver i was the driver <laughs> and i remember
6: <laughs> i was riding shotgun yeah. and i woke up in the middle of the night because deval had Duval like, had had like out. A,
7: mike mike did that too because we were driving through like blue mason <laughs> these are band members yeah yeah, yeah. mike deval our bass player and he was sleeping in none of a dead sleep he had this big scream and it kind of scared me but <laughs> we made it and then uh, we showed up and we're like hey do you have any open slots because usually a band drops out and they were like sure and we uh we were that you know
0: movie storyline band, I guess, for for that particular moment. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with two members of the band Green Sky Bluegrass. Mandolin player and singer Paul Hoffman lives in Denver, and Dave Bruza, who plays the guitar and also sings, lives in Fort Collins. Dave, you moved to Colorado several years ago, and Paul, you've since relocated from Michigan uh, to Denver. Uh, What led you both here? Uh, Well, my wife. (laughs) I'm just okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was, uh,
7: we were together for a while and we were, you know, I was flying off of tour to come and hang out in Colorado. And then she uh, ended up getting a job in Denver. So a few years ago I moved to Denver for a while and then we moved back to Fort Collins about a year ago.
6: And Paul, I was just following Dave. Anyway, following. <laughs> he, he had a hard time big being big away from me. me. Yeah. <laughs> I love it here. It's, um, Obviously, the music is cool, but the you know just being part of a thriving community that's with you know successful restaurants and awesome events, and I love the mountains, I love the weather. It's beautiful out there today.
0: Uh, has the culture here changed how your music sounds?
6: I don't think so. You know, it's funny when um, so many times we were mistaken for a Colorado band when we were like very, very, you know... Much a Michigan band. Very much a Michigan <laughs> band, and we had a... You know, it was kind of like... There was a time when we talked about moving to North Carolina, and we didn't, and staying in Michigan probably helped us because being a Michigan bluegrass band was this like talking piece for us. And one time we even got nominated for best local band in the Westward. Oh when yeah, we, well, we in still live in Calm. You had to go, "Excuse
0: me, actually." Well,
6: yeah, it was
7: it
0: was kind of funny.
6: <laughs> that was like t- maybe ten years ago or something. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, somewhere around there, two thousand seven, maybe.
0: And some of the band members they still live in Michigan, right?
6: We got the banjo player is still in Kalamazoo. Or so,
0: so how does that work? Would from... you guys Skype your rehearsals? How does that work when <laughs> you guys are working with each other?
7: You know, we we tour so much, and when we're on the road, we have plenty of time and opportunity to get together and and work out tunes. I think that all of us living in different places is really a you know, broaden everyone's personal playing and being more responsible for a personal practice. And I think that brings a whole new edge to the music and more
6: uh, creative side to it as well.
0: And Paul, you feel that as well?
6: Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. We get together a day or two early sometimes before a tour. But like he says, we play a lot and our catalog of music is really big. So we just kind of run stuff before we play it and, you know.
0: Green Sky has developed a reputation for its improvisational, almost jam band style uh, with long instrumental breaks. Uh, I think you can really hear it in this song, Living Over. (laughs) ¶¶ Studio recordings can sometimes sound pretty polished, uh, but this track, it, it's like you're hearing it at a, a concert of yours. Uh, how do you keep songs organic and having that live improvisational feel when recording in a studio? Well, we played it live.
7: <laughs> I was actually just, when we were listening to it, thinking about the whole day when we were tracking that.
6: It was really cool. Yeah. It was pretty vibey in there. We had the lights down and everything. That's lights great. down. Um, we composed that section in the middle that's improvised. <laughs> Like we would on stage, we sort of, we composed it in the studio. and as Dave mentioned, all these tunes were pretty new and we hadn't played any of them live before. Um, and it created an interesting dynamic for this song. In the past, we had recorded long songs that there were like improvisation pieces that we'd already played live, and it sort of created a, um, a standard that we were trying to like recreate in the studio, but this tune is studio improvisation live. Like we kind of just went in and we were like, let's kind of do this and then kind of do this and just go for it. And uh, I think it's one of the most successful improvisational studio things we've ever done. Um, I, I understand. You, you, the two of you are, are the main
0: songwriters of the band. And, and several musicians we've had on the program say they can't write while on the road, while others say touring inspires them. Uh, Green Sky travels the country a lot for shows. <laughs> uh, does that help or, or hinder your writing? Actually, uh, I get a lot of inspiration
7: around the road. That seems to be when I'm um, most creative because I come home from a tour, I always bring a notebook with me and I always have little pieces of stuff. And uh, when I want to get home and sit down and write, I kind of pull this out and there's certain ideas that I already have. So, yeah, it's pretty
6: inspirational for me. I do a really similar kind of thing I, with lyrically and like ideas, like he says, I come up with while we're on tour and just all the time. If I hear someone say something that triggers like Ooh. some really – I'm always listening, so careful. <laughs> you know, like the, one of the opening lines on the record, I know everything for all that I know, was like a slip that our bass player said, really similar, and I was like, that is brilliant. So I, mean, the, I wrote it so down. So the first time he said something he's, he's got a couple opening lines in my songs, great lyrics. <laughs> uh, it's not enough to feel it. It needs to overwhelm you. Um, so I'll write that stuff down. And, but but uh, musically, I, I do most of that at, like at home.
0: It strikes me that the songs on this album range from a rock sound with bluegrass undertones to a more traditional bluegrass sound. Uh, take Cover comes to mind. Cause it's raining,
7: My heart
6: is with questions
0: As we've mentioned, your musical identity shifts uh, throughout the album. Do you feel you have an obligation to your fans to stick to this type of sound, your bluegrass roots? Well, I wouldn't call this <laughs> very bluegrass well, What would you do? Okay. Uh, this is
7: just completely just insane chaos. Um you know, the way that it moves has got more of a swing feel to it than anything else, but I mean... It's
6: kind of, it is kind of a swing. Yeah, but I, I, I've
7: never been able to, like, categorize what's going on. It's I just, always
6: call this, like, our uh, psychedelic circus music. But it's I think totally the question like that, remains, yeah.
0: though. I mean, do you, do you need to stick true to that, the bluegrass roots, for your fans?
6: You know, I think
0: as long as we, we stay
7: true to who we are and our personal identity and everything, I think... Um, That's the most important part, and I think our fans embrace that. I think they love the creativity that we bring to the table.
0: Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Mandolin player and singer Paul Hoffman and guitarist and singer De Bruza of the band Green Sky Bluegrass. They have a new album out called Shouted, Written Down, and Quoted. And you can catch the band at the Ogden Theater in Denver the first weekend in December. And watch videos of Green Sky Bluegrass performing at Red Rocks and Telluride Bluegrass Festival at CPRNews.org. And that's our show. Thanks to Matt Hers and Michael Hughes. Andrew Dukakis is my director. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. Raise a flag, except the gales
7: won't listen. Band down the hatches, better call your mother. Pop the bottle, that